My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. They were screaming, bravo, bravo, and tall chief, tall chief. So I think people had never seen anything like that before on the stage. The combination of George Balanchine's choreography and my mother's brilliance. Ask mama, she'll know what to do. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. In the 1940s and 50s, Maria Tallchief revolutionized ballet together with George Balanchine, who was her choreographer. She was his muse. And even as she was growing super famous, she refused to turn her back on her Osage roots. Plus, she refused to change her name to something that sounded more Russian, which is what a lot of ballerinas were doing at the time. No, she remained Maria Tallchief. She died in 2013. I recently read her 1997 autobiography, which she wrote with Larry Kaplan. And also recently, I sat down for an interview with her daughter, the renowned poet, Elise Passion. Someone's recording now. Yeah, Yeah. I'm recording now. (laughs) Uh, I'm sitting in my husband's closet, by the way, because it's the closest thing to our Wi-Fi router. (laughs) So when your mom died in 2013, one of the comments that accompanied her New York Times obituary was this. An aspiring ballerina at the age of five, I remember my mother waking me up long after my bedtime saying, Wake up! Maria Tallchief is dancing on TV. I don't remember the dance, just the excitement better than any Christmas morning. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that really sums up the excitement around her at the time. If you were to use one word to sum her up, what would that word be? Um, so it's very challenging to use one word to describe your mother, but I suppose if I were to choose one word, I would say passionate. She was very passionate about every aspect of her life. And passion is probably something you're born with? Well, I think that when she was little, my sense is that she was very shy, but she started studying ballet, sadly, too young when she was three, and also piano when she was three. So I know that she was very committed, you know, to her studies of these disciplines, going to school. She was, you know, a straight A student, and she definitely had her passions, whether or not she, you know, I don't, I can't say that she was a passionate little girl, (laughs) per se, but... Well, let's go back to the beginning of her life. Tell me where she was born, when she was born, who her parents were. So my mother was born in Fairfax, Oklahoma, on January 24th, 1925. Her father was full Osage, Alexander Tallchief. Her mother, um, Scots-Irish, Ruth Porter Tallchief. Um... She was born on the Osage Reservation, which was in the northeast corner of Oklahoma. And tall chief was um, two words. Yes, it was, in fact, two words, tall chief. And later on, when she was being encouraged to change her name to Maria Talchiev, her name was Elizabeth. She was born Elizabeth Marie Talchief. She changed her name to... Maria, so she took her middle name and turned mm-hmm. it into Maria and kept her last name, Tallchief, but made it into one word. This, she was born in a, in a time of turmoil, 
for the Osage. Um, t- tell me about that, the reign of terror. So in the 1920s, the Osages were considered one of the richest people in the world because of oil under their land. And um, as a result, white men came to this little town of Fairfax, Oklahoma, and married Osage women with the idea of killing them for their head rights. Oh, my gosh. And head rights being their rights to the oil. Exactly, to the mineral Mm -hmm. rights. Mm -hmm. Um, So this all began in 1921. And my mother, as I said, was born in 1925. So, you know, she was born in this in this little town that was a boom town. Your grandmother. It sounds like she wanted her girls. To, so there was your mother, who was the oldest, and then Marjorie, her younger sister. Mm-hmm. And she wanted her girls to uh, do dance and piano. And my the reason why my mother says is that my grandmother wanted them to become musical film stars. And I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) And that's why they were studying dance and piano. And uh, it does sound like your mother, she was put on point too early. Yes. And, uh, and that's just bad for your bad for your body, bad for your feet. (laughs) And it could have really damaged her. But luckily, it didn't. Yes, yes. When she was five, a teacher came to Fairfax, and she's the one who taught the girls and had them go, had at least my mother go on on point too soon. So your mom was saved, actually, by this move to California. Her feet were saved. I hadn't even thought of that until just now. So then (laughs) how old was she when they moved to California? And the reason they moved was... Well, she was eight years old, and I think that my grandmother, you know, my sense is that she didn't, well, the stories my mother told me growing up was that she didn't want her children being raised in this little town where there was so much crime. So that was the story I always heard, and I also think she wanted her her children, you know, to have better educations, and she figured that she would find better you know, ballet teachers in Los Angeles than in Fairfax, Oklahoma. Probably a good bet. <laughs> yes. And then when she was 12, she studied with the, the great teacher of her life, Najinska, who is the sister of Najinsky. And that's the person who really, you know, taught my mother ballet. And the a wonderful story there that I remember my mother telling me is that when she was 15, she performed... Um, for Nijinska at the Hollywood Bowl. But my memory was that my mother could also perform the piece of the concerto on piano as well as as perform it balletically. And that's the story I always grew up with was that around 16, my mother could have decided to become a concert pianist or a classical ballerina or she also was accepted at an early age to go to UCLA. So she had these three, you know, choices she could make in her in her life. So your grandmother's dream of the girls becoming f- musical film stars, and then your mother chose the ballet, which your grandmother went along with. So, and what a lucky stroke that she fell into the arms of 
Madame Nijinska. What, what do you think Madame Nijinska saw in her? I'm sure she saw someone incredibly talented and very disciplined and very dedicated. She probably saw the perfect student. Yeah. And was your mother lucky to have the the ballerina's body? And back in those days, was a ballerina's body different from what we think of it today? I would say that it's the same. She was thin. She had beautiful legs, beautiful arms. My mother always talked about the port de bras, how important that is. You know, she had great... Um, Explain to us what a a port de bras is. So it's the movement you make with your arms when you perform Mm -hmm. ballet. And she, yes, you're right. She was born with all the the beauties and all the the attributes of a of a dancer. Mm -hmm. So then she uh, she left home pretty early to go to New York. Is that right? Yes, that is. She was 17, I think, and. What's interesting, you know, we think about, oh, the New York City Ballet, it's always existed. You know, it's like the subway. Yes. And actually, the answer to that is no. And she was instrumental in the formation of it because of George Balanchine. So just to go really quickly through some of what happened before she met Balanchine, she was with a a troupe uh, called the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. So she was, your mom was starting to get a name for herself. And then she met uh, George Balanchine in the mid-1940s, and he, and he became smitten with her as a dancer and clearly as a person. So he's basically grooming her and starts to choreograph for her. And what we have to remember is that she was his muse, at that time, he had a series of muses, and she was one of the very first, if not the first. And then in the middle of all of this, as a total surprise, around 1946, he just says, well, will you marry me? <laughs> and that goes as if that just goes along with the whole muse thing, <laughs> right? Yes. And so then they get married. And the way she describes it, one of the things, you know, when I started reading the book, I thought, okay, well, then there's going to be this horrible falling out and a ton of jealousy as he moves on to the next muse. And there was none of that. As she transitioned from being his wife and primary muse to then being not his wife, but still his primary muse, he is creating these beautiful ballets for her. And then the one that was really her breakout ballet was Firebird, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I also just want to point out that there was quite a huge age difference between Balanchine and my mother. And she was, I think, 19 or 20. She was so young when, when they met and when they married. And my grandparents were against her marrying Balanchine, but, you know, she she loved him and she decided, you know, she was going to marry him anyway. Um, she was the prima ballerina of the, definitely of the United States and uh, one of the most famous dancers in the world. Uh, she then, uh, she and Balanchine 
divorce, but it's so amicable. You would almost never know. It was just so incredibly seamless. And then she then meets this pilot who everyone refers to as an aviator, (laughs) uh, Russian nobility. And uh, she realizes after a couple of years that this was really a big mistake. And then uh, she meets your dad, Buzz Passion, and they get married. So this is in the now we're in the 50s. Well, I have right? a good story for how they met. I'd love to hear it. Um, they had a whirlwind courtship. They married on June 3rd, 1956. So they met, I think, six months before that. And she was performing Firebird in Chicago. A very dear friend of our family's, Dorothy Harza, was a ballet domain and adored my mother. And her aunt said, you know, Dorothy, when Maria Tallchief travels, she's very, she's probably very lonely going from city to city. Why don't you invite Maria out after the performance? Dorothy (laughs) invited my mother out with her, with the man she was to marry, Richard Harza, along with um, a man named Richard Dickie Schneider as my mother's double date. I think they were at a place called, I want to say something like Adolph's. And my father came in and and it was really love at first sight. And he asked my mother out on a date. And the next day he went to his office. His family was in the construction business and he had no idea who he was dating, who Maria Talchief was. And, he, and the other part of the story was that he served as an extra in Firebird. He asked her on the date and she said, oh, you can come to the performance and here, we'll give you a little part. (laughs) And so they gave him a little part and he was apparently a little disappointed that all he did was stand there. Uh, (laughs) I know. So, So it was really like this whirlwind romance. I do think it was six months later that they got married. It was all very impetuous. So they didn't really think about, would my father move to New York City? So that when they did get married... They were kind of in flux and they were going, you know, I know she was going back and forth from Chicago to New York because she was still performing. Right. And so I think the marriage kind of took a hit just kind of from the get-go because they hadn't thought it through. Do you think that's right? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So she's going all over, not just to New York, but she's going all over the world still with her dancing. Mm -hmm. And then you come along you apparently had a, a wonderful nanny who was a um, a Swiss nun. This amazing woman named Sir Ruth, um, who was Swiss. And she wasn't a nun, but she was a nurse. And in Switzerland, they would say sir to indicate sister. So oh, Sister okay. Ruth. And she would travel um, with you when your mom was traveling. She and you would meet up with your mom in these various cities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want to ask you one question, and then I wanted to ask you to read a poem. Uh, Let me ask you this first question, which is, what is your earliest memory of your mother, of the fact that your mother was a dancer? My first memory of her dancing, I mean, the memory that I know that I've written about Um, was her dancing Cinderella in Hamburg. I have very vivid memories of that. Mm. That's a perfect segue to this poem called The Other Mother that I'd love for you to read. Do you happen to have a copy? I do, I do. 
the other mother. Because she is my mother, every night she turns into Cinderella. In the wings I watch, a dove balances on each shoulder. Her hair tied with a scarf, she sweeps across the stage, her broom, a branch, a courtly partner. I smell the rosin and commit Prokofiev's score to heart. It is Hamburg, 1965. From the window of our hotel, once a palace, die Führerartseiten, a Christmas tree set in the white lake's heart glistens. We change hotels because, my mother says, someone forgets to send the checks. Our room becomes smaller, our hotels, motels, rooming houses. A dancer helps me make my father's gift, a box for cigarettes. I've glued three velvet hearts beneath the lid. We send it overseas. My mother reaches home at midnight. On a table, I've arranged her supper, dark bread, hunchen, peppermints. She drapes a scarf across the lamp, reads mysteries. Christmas morning, evergreen in the air. A small fir tree stands on the bedside table, alive now with bears, leopards, skunks, and zebras. Is this the way my mother feels as she enters the stage atop the crystal stairway, the court ball at her feet, like some rare gift, a gift her mother has carefully placed beside her bed, a tree in miniature, inhabited by llamas, elks, giraffes, tigers, gazelles, a new kingdom to rule? It's really beautiful. And you remember this. I do. I did. When I wrote this poem, I remembered it vividly. I would go to watch her rehearse every day and I would sit in the audience and it was this magical production of of Cinderella and they, she had live doves perched on her shoulders. So you can imagine as a little child, you know, what an incredible Sight. fantasy. Yes, that was to witness. Um, and then I remember at the very end of the ballet, she got into the, the carriage and it literally went up into the rafters. So it was really just incredible ballet. And she writes a lot about Balanchine's choreography and how he would do these things that would, that would make her movements seem magical. Uh, many of her leaps would seem as if, as if she were levitating mm. that would make the audience actually gasp. Mm -hmm. Just to circle back to Balanchine for a minute, he and she were, they were really creating an entirely new almost lexicon mm -hmm. around ballet. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? Definitely. I think that's a beautiful way to phrase it. My mother was devoted to Balanchine. So she, you know, growing up with my mother, her whole sense of the ballet aesthetic revolved around Balanchine, what she had learned from him. Once she had her own company, her mission was to teach younger dancers the Balanchine ballets that she had learned. And she um, really was just so devoted to Mr. Balanchine. She loved to tell the story how when her own company, which she founded in um, 1980, the Chicago City Ballet, was performing Firebird, 
um, Mr. Balanchine was sitting next to me in the audience and um, he turned to me and he said, you know, when your mother performed Firebird, that's when the New York City Ballet took off. And I remember telling my mother the story and she was so delighted because she said Mr. Balanchine never <laughs> praised her, but she absolutely adored him. And he was very much a part of our lives, my life growing up, my dad's life. And um, he, he was a, you know, obviously a genius and he revolutionized ballet. And as we were saying, that first production that they performed Firebird is what just lit the audiences on fire. You know, they were screaming, bravo, bravo, and tall chief, tall chief. Um, so I think people had never seen anything like that before on the stage. The combination of George Balanchine's choreography and my mother's, you know, brilliance. Your mother seems to have retired in the most gracious possible way that a dancer could retire. And when she did, she really became a devoted mother to you. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And how would you say that she as a mother showed her love? You know, mothers show their love in such different ways. What was her external expression? Well, you know, I feel that she devoted herself. After she retired, she devoted herself to being the wife of my father and to being my mother. So she she continued the trajectory that my grandmother had instilled. You know, my grandmother made sure that the girls studied and studied their ballet lessons and piano. And my mother did the same thing with me. So she instilled in me that sense of um, of a pursuit of excellence and hoping to be the best at whatever it was that I did. She has a wonderful passage in the book where she describes how she actually taught you ballet at one mm -hmm. point um, with Caroline Kennedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they, Jackie would come and watch every class and remark to your mother at one point, it's so wonderful, Maria, that you don't treat Elise any differently from the other students. <laughs> and your mother was very proud of this. And then one day you were in tears and she said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And you said, you pay more attention to Caroline than to me. And your mother felt terrible. Do you, do you remember <laughs> I this? I do, I do. I remember and, that. And it really, you could, it comes through in the pages just how terrible your mother felt that she thought she was treating you no differently and Caroline no differently. And, and that's not how you perceived it. Right, right. But going back to, you know, your original question. So she, we're living in Chicago. She's a housewife. She's a mother. And so she in Chicago would then do what, what her mother did. And she would drive me to ballet class. She would drive me to piano lessons. And I feel like, I guess that's the way she, I mean, she, that was one way how she showed her love, but she also was just very <clears throat> passionate. I'll go back to that word. And I always knew that she would do whatever was necessary for me. You know, she would mm. give me the shirt off of her back. And if there was ever something going on in my life, you know, she was the person I could call. She would be there. She would swoop in and try to save the day. So then you went on and became a poet. 
and a, a literary scholar. I'm assuming she supported that when you did it. Yes, she did. And she, I think, was so proud in the end that she ended up, you know, she ended up with a daughter who became a writer. And she just was very enthusiastic when I would give readings and with, you know, prizes I won and books I published. Um, and one of the moving things that I recall is she was doing an interview, and I have to try to find it again, Words on Dance with Deborah Kaufman. And she read a poem I wrote that I had been commissioned to write by the New York City Ballet for their 50th anniversary. And it was a poem about her dancing in the ballet Orpheus. And my mother... Oh, this is Eurydice. Yes. Right. And my mother read mm. the poem in the interview. And I, I have to go back and re you know remember why she read it. But she read it and she was... She After she read it, she kissed the poem. <laughs> she was so... She was so moved by it. She was probably kissing <laughs> kissing the poem in gratitude for your not having become a lawyer. Right. It's an absolutely beautiful poem. Thank you. And it's said at the time that she was married to Balanchine. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure she treasured that imagery that you evoked mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with it. So you did with words what she would do with dance. Mm -hmm. and so, in fact... Poetry about your mother really does kind of punctuate your life as a poet. And there's, uh, you have a, a volume of poems that you suggested I read to prepare for the interview, and it's, it's called The Nightlife. And at the back of that volume is a poem titled My Mother Descends. And this is at the end of her life when she's declining. And I'm wondering if it would be too hard for you to read that. No, I'd be happy to read it. Thank you. What happened with my poor mom is that she and my father got back together. Now we're, we're in 1965. And, you know, they adored each other. They were madly in love. They were, you know, a couple that would sit up late at night you know, wherever we were around the world. And they would just talk under the stars into the wee hours of the night. Um, and they were very um, interdependent. So, I mean, they were just like, you know, a unit of one. <laughs> and um, my poor dad ended up contracting pancreatic cancer. And oh. when, when my dad died in 2004, my mother basically, you know, instead of dying of a broken heart, which so I think happens to many couples that, you know, the spouse will, will soon die afterwards. My mother just ended up becoming very ill mentally. And it's strange because her doctor never formally defined it as dementia, but it really was like dementia and Alzheimer's. She she remembered us. She knew who we were. But she really, I guess the best way to describe it is she'd kind of lost her will to live. You know, she just, she missed my father so, so, so desperately. And it was sad because, you know, as her only child, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm here. You have two grandchildren. She, when the 
my two children were born, she was the most devoted grandmother. Nothing made her more happy than those grandchildren. But then when my mm -hmm. dad died, all of us kind of became invisible to her. And she sadly was in that state until her death in 2013. And it was just very tragic because the dementia was just, you know, took over her entire being. So it was really hard to remember who my, who my beautiful, magnificent, brilliant mother was before her, what was it, nine years of dementia. Oh, my. Yeah. So anyway, the poem that you've asked me to read comes out of that. My mother descends. After he died, she slipped away, visiting her husband, my father, every night in the underworld. At dinner, she hides spoons inside her sleeves. After sunset, she crosses the river Styx, braving storm-torn waves. Rehearsing death, she lies in bed for twelve-hour stints. The skiff, so fragile, shakes when she recovers her balance. When she descends to bring him back, clouds skim her eyes. She cannot see, catching only glints of his silver hair. There's never enough cutlery for Cherim. Cerberus snarls hot. What she wouldn't give to convince Hades. Awake at sunrise, her limbs heavy, ache from the labor. She is weary and observes silence with the living. It strikes me as a, as a bookend to the Eurydice mm -hmm. poem. Mm -hmm. Is that what you intended? Yes, yes very much so. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you, how you would describe her legacy. Um, I feel that my mother embodied the American dream. So here she was, a young girl, Osage, growing up, you know, on the, res on the Osage Reservation in Oklahoma, and became this world-class prima ballerina, America's first prima ballerina. And I think that she serves as an inspiration for many people from all different walks of life have been inspired by my mother. And of course, all the young dancers, you know, throughout the decades have been inspired by my mother. And um, she inspires my fellow um, members of the Osage Nation, Native Americans. So I think, you know, her legacy was quite, is quite substantial. And Elise Passion, I would like to thank you so much for talking with me about your brilliant, passionate, gifted mother. It has been such a such a pleasure talking to you and and sharing memories of her incredible inspiring life. So thank you so much. That's it this week for our mothers ourselves. Our music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist in residence. Sophie McNulty did our social media this week, and Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Before I sign off, a couple of things have come up. 
One is that it occurred to me the other day while I was putting this together that See My Toes, the nail polish company that's dedicated to feet, its motto is, why should your fingernails have all the fun? It has a great color called Bar Class. It's muted and neutral with a hint of shimmer. So go to SeeMyToes.com. Also, I have a couple of friends, Anne Devereaux and Ariel Fuller, and they have a conversation series called Parlay House. Well, they've started a podcast called Bring a Friend. I called Ariel today to get the skinny on Bring a Friend straight from her. Yeah, yeah. So Bring a Friend is a new podcast that uh, is created by Parlay House, and it's all about getting together for real conversations that you normally only have with your best friends, laughing together, sharing our dreams. There's three of us who are always on the show, sort of the hosts, if you will. That's Anne Devereaux Mills, who's the founder of Parlay House, um, Adamika Arthur, who is just a triple, quadruple threat, savior, amazing, amazing person, and then myself. Um, it's basically us three. It really feels like you're in a living room, kind of like how Parlay House feels with some friends that you trust. When is the first one? The first episode drops on February 3rd. It is going to be with our friend, the Scotch maker. <laughs> His name is Kadeen. I love Scotch. Well, actually, I'm lying. No, well, no, yes. I don't really love Scotch. But I just <laughs> well, like you to. need to listen to the first episode because she's the first woman to start a Scotch company. And it was all about how she and everybody thinks that they don't like scotch she's sort of on this mission to get more people into scotch so bring a friend bring bring a friend yeah you can find us anywhere that you listen to your podcast all right wow okay well thank you welcome to the podcast world thank you we're so happy to be here <laughs> our mothers ourselves is a production of odredex studios in san francisco and i'm your host katie hafner have a great week everyone and stay safe <laughs>